and friends. I hope that you all are doing well, and if you would, we're going to make a little shift this morning. Turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 1. We're going to take a couple weeks off from Exodus, and together over this Christmas season, we're going to look at the Christmas narrative, and I usually would never not do this, and uh, however, since it falls upon the Lord's Day, what a great opportunity to look at this glorious story to it. Last Sunday, our, our brother Bill preached from the whole book of Ruth, such a feat I would never attempt to try, and he did a wonderful job in, in teaching us and showing us what Christmas is in 1153 B.C., and how in the book of Ruth, the Lord, God, was working to fulfill his promises to provide for his people a deliverer. Now, the deliverer did not come in the book of Ruth, but we see through the story, this biblical theology, that God is showing us that even in Ruth, we can see the, the glories of Christ. We can see the gospel. We can see redemption and a redeemer, right, who Christ is. Christ is this type, uh, or Christ is the redeemer, but Boaz in Ruth is a type of Christ who is redeeming a destitute Ruth. And then we saw how that redemption, how that restoration brings joy, right? And, and even in this small family in Israel in 1153 B.C., a microchasm of the work of the gospel just explodes on the scene in the gospel of Luke. This little thing that they experience now just explodes for all. And if you look forward to Luke chapter 3, the glorious genealogy of Jesus Christ. We love lists. We love reading lists. And we see how that list goes from Jesus to Adam. And we see in the middle of that progression in the lineage, as it goes from David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. This is the Boaz of Ruth, that kinsman redeemer in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So again, pointing forward from, from Ruth all the way to Luke, we see the connection, the historical connection being made for us all to see and to hear the legitimacy of the birth of Christ as the Son of God. And as Luke's intent in verses 1 through 4 is to give us an orderly, accurate, historical account of the life of Jesus Christ and all the bozos out there who like to tell you something differently. Listen, they were not there. Luke was. Luke knows. He gave us a historical account. The other morons did not. Amen. Now, we read the story with the details because he's given us that historical account. Now, we're going to begin in verse 26 in just a moment, but starting in verse 5, we read this at the end of our service last week, he, we set the stage of what's, of what's going on. There's 400 years or so of silence between the prophet Malachi to the, to the New Testament, right, and to the, the, the coming of the angels, 
right? And so there's 400 years of silence. We get the historical account that this is the historical king, Herod, who was now king over Judea. Now, history, we have to there's a lot of a lot of water under that bridge to get to Herod as king. The Romans are ruling over all of Judea, and they have placed Herod as being this puppet king over uh, uh, Ju Judea. So they're not even ruling themselves. Remember, they were taken over by the Babylonians. We did that in Ezra and in, in, in Nehemiah, and as time would have it and overcome, right? People, people attack each other and take over their nations, and here's now Rome in control of almost the whole world, including this, the Middle East, and they put Herod as king. And there's this man, so now the story's getting tighter on to Zechariah, who is a faithful priest. He is righteous before God. And his wife, Elizabeth, spelled with a Z, Elizabeth, his wife, who is also righteous, described to us as a daughter of Aaron. So in the lineage of the priests, they were righteous and they were blameless before the Lord. And they were old, right? They were old. They were very old. And they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. That's the context of the story. And as we know, as we read the Bible, as we've been seeing in Exodus, when we read stuff like this, bad news, bad news, bad news, verse 3 of Ephesians 2, but God. And that's what we're to get, right? There's this anticipation that's supposed to well up in us as we get to this. And here's the story. Zacharias with the rest of the priests being figuring out who's going to go offer the offerings that particular time. His group of priests go up. He, like in Ruth, it just so happened that he casted the lots and was chosen to make the offering of essence. And if you didn't catch my little quotes, that's back from Ruth, that it just so happened that Ruth would stumble upon the same field as Boaz. This is God's providence. His sovereign hand over all of history. And here's Zacharias being chosen in his old age to make an offering and incense within the temple. And as he is there, he's doing his duty. The, the, the angel Gabriel comes on the scene and appears to him. The angel of the Lord appears to him as he's making this offering. And, and Zechariah was terrified by the angel of the Lord. Yet here's this angel. He encouraged him and says, fear not. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. And he tells him, your prayer has been heard. The prayer that you have been praying for decades, a prayer for a child, has been heard. And it's not only just going to be your child, but this is the child that will proclaim and be the forego, that will go before Christ. He will pave the way. He is part of the redemption of all of Israel. You will have a son, and his name will be John. And you will have joy and gladness. Doesn't it sound like Ruth? I mean, you'll be joy and, and gladness. And, and many other people will rejoice at the birth of John. John will be great. He will be set apart. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he will have a message to preach and to proclaim. A message of repentance to prepare the way of the Lord. And Zechariah's response, and we, we give him grace here, as he asks for evidence, he says, he says, why? How, could, how can this happen? 
I'm old. Oh, yeah, my wife is old, and she is barren. And, and, and Gabriel exposes Zechariah's un, unbelief, and he says, I am an angel that stands in the presence of, of God. You should know this, Zechariah. Zechariah is disciplined, right? It's a loving discipline of, of he's going to be a de- or mute. He's not going to be able to speak for, until the child is born, and this brings about worship. And as the angel has, has told Zechariah, it happens. Elizabeth, in her, in her old age, conceives. And they rejoice in God's goodness and faithfulness. And that brings us up to where we are this morning, where we're going to start this morning in verse 26. So this is the story of the, of the forerunner, John the Baptist, that is going to be born and is going to prepare the way for the Lord. And to proclaim to everyone to get ready for the kingdom of God is at hand. To repent and turn and to prepare the world. Now this this story is in there with all of its details again so that we would have confidence and certainty of the gospel message that has been taught in the scriptures. And that we can have certainty in the sovereignty of God and in the promises of God. That God has said that he is going to send his son, and he would send one that would prepare the way for his son, and God is fulfilling his promises. He's working to accomplish for his people, for his glory, and for his, their joy, and for our joy. There's no, we're, we're no strangers to the idea that the Bible is filled with Gospel promises, sovereign promises, promises that we, we rely on, that we put our faith in, that we trust because we know that God is going to be faithful. And so we believe, we have faith, we trust. That is the, that's the foundation of, of Christianity. But what is it that we trust in? Do we just trust in the promises themselves? No, we trust in the one who is given the promises. We trust in him because he is trustworthy. And therefore, one who is trustworthy, who who gives us these promises, then we believe those promises. And, And thinking of the Bible and thinking of the scripture of some promises that as Christians we, we should just daily remind ourselves of. I, I've come up with three. And those are one, one would be from a big one, right? These are just going to be big ones. Romans 8, right? Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to an image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, so think about this. In that amazing three verses, what is packed there? There's so much just jam-packed into those particular verses. For those who are in Christ, for those who he has called, those who love God, you see how all these things work together. It says, all things work together. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And and this means that everything that happens in our lives, the good, the happiness, the joys, the bad, the hurts, the loss, the suffering, the persecutions, 
that God in his sovereignty has the ability to use it all, everything that comes our way to work it for our good, for our, for our good. How can bad be used for our good? Well, if you are God and you are sovereign over all things, then he can, and he does. Like, look what we see within the, what we just talked about with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so this promise means to us, that means whatever comes our, our way, he, we can always believe that God is behind it in a way to work for our good and not to ultimately kill us and destroy us in some vindictive matter or meaning, but to sanctify us, to make us more into the image of Christ for our, for our good so that we would have a deep joy and satisfaction and confidence in him and not on the flesh, or in the world. And of course, there's, there's so much more here, right, about justification and glorification, but just that first promise alone is amazing. But here's a second one. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And what is Paul saying here? The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is God's word, is saying that he is confident and sure that God, Christ, the Holy Spirit who has saved you, the one who has started this building project in your life, will see it to completion. He will finish the task that he started. Now, this promise should be very encouraging to us because we all know that there are seasons of apathy. We know there are seasons of dryness and difficulty and struggle with, with even sin, sin, seasons of doubt and discouragement, because all that we can see so often in our life is not completion, but incompletion. Drive through Atlanta and look how much incompletion is in Atlanta. Drive through Orlando. That's a never-ending project of disastrous proportions. And sometimes our life kind of looks like that, like a bunch of dudes standing around and only one guy striving to do the job, and it never gets done. And so when we hear verses like this, this should just be water that washes over us, that it will be complete. What good news that is. And the pressure in many ways that it takes off, that one day, in the day of Jesus Christ, we will be made complete as he is because he is at work from beginning to the end. Third promise. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Now, this promise gets down to the nitty-gritty of everyday lives. Our failures, our temptations, doesn't it? It gets right down to it. And it says that no temptation that you have ever faced in this life is beyond your ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to resist. Now it says that each temptation, God will provide a way of escape that we can endure. How about that? And what good news that we can hold on to there. First, we can resist every temptation that comes your way, but second, the Lord by his Holy Spirit will give us a way of escape. That is a good one. And now these, 
these three promises, they're, they're great. And certainly there's so much more we can say about these and from these particular three verses. And they can often, though, seem just too good to be true, don't they? It doesn't seem like in those times of temptation that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is even real. God's promised the way of escape, and I'm not seeing it, Lord. Or when suffering comes, it's hard to believe that somehow God is going to use that for our good. Here's the reason why I started with these promises today and how it connects to our passage. It's because these promises that we have a hard time sometimes believing, and those are just three of them, even on a daily basis. Think about then how much the promises that Gabriel has delivered to Zechariah and then to Mary must have seemed absurd or difficult to believe. Even though they were longing and waiting for the coming of the Christ child. Looking at Luke, verse 26, read with me. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. <laughs> and Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come to come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has has also conceived the son. And this is the sixth month with her who has called, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. This story, brothers and sisters, is not just a story for children on Christmas. This isn't just for cute nativity scenes and maiden lights. or. But this is a story that is to encourage the church. This is the story of how the birth of Jesus Christ would take place, and it was delivered by the messenger, the angel Gabriel, to the young virgin Mary. This was the promised, the foretold for centuries before that the Old Testament tells us over and over again of the birth of Christ. The Son of God is coming. 
the author gives us this chronological context to the previous story. He says six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy with John, the angel then is, is, is sent to, to Mary. So she's far along in her pregnancy. But this time the angel doesn't go to these big cities, but it goes to this obscure town of Nazareth in Galilee. Why would Gabriel ignore Judea, where Jerusalem is, or even where Bethlehem is? Why would they go to, wouldn't go to the, to, why would they go to the region where, where Jewish readers would read this and consider this place of Nazareth, of Galilee, to be an unpure, unclean, unworthy place? A place where it was known where, where Romans would live and Gentiles would live. Remember that this is what Nathaniel, a disciple, one who would follow Jesus, said in regards to Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The angel skipping over Judea, skipping over Jerusalem, and skipping over the temple, but instead comes to this lowly home of this young virgin girl named Mary. Now, think about that. Mary, who in the eyes of the world is, someone, is not someone with great accomplishments. They had no fame. She was an absolute nobody to the world, 13 to 16 years old, a young teenager, poor, probably illiterate, no extraordinary life whatsoever, but yet was favored and blessed by the Lord. And we cannot miss the inescapable fact that the greatest of all news to be ever delivered and ever proclaimed in the history of Israel came to the most humblest of its people, a little teenage girl in Galilee. And this is so significant. And this is so humbling to us because this is the way the good news comes. As it comes to the, to the lowly Mary, we see in the New Testament how the gospel comes to the needy, to the spiritually impoverished, to the humble, to those who realize that without Christ they cannot make it. Those who realize that there is no hope, that they are dead in their trespasses and sin without the grace of God, without him, they would still be dead in their trespasses and sin. That's the loneliness that the gospel comes to in those who hear the incarnation, the salvation, resurrection, and the gospel is not for the proud or the self-sufficient, but to the humble to the needy, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, and those who hunger, who and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The connection then for us is that the good news delivered to Mary is also this glorious news for us and is so helpful in believing these gospel promises that we have been given. And so when we look deeper into this story, I want us to see how then do we, do we respond to God's promises? And in particular, how do we respond to this glorious promise of Christmas? Right? Because Christmas doesn't just stop at the manger, but it goes to the cross. And it goes to the resurrection. 
How do we respond to that? And I think Mary shows us that. With humility and faith and submission. There's a response of humility here. Mary, in the context of her life, is she's betrothed to be married to Joseph. And Joseph is described as a man of the house of David. And Gabriel comes to Mary, just like he came to Zechariah six months or so earlier. And her experience with the angel, as it was with Zechariah, was intimidating. She was scared. Maybe not as scared to half the death like Zechariah was in the temple, but you clearly can see she was scared and yet still recognize that the angel of the Lord has come. And she was greeted by him, saying in verse 28, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. What an incredible greeting to her. In her song, in the, the Magnificat, she, she says that she is truly most blessed. And as the angel has said, she truly is Mary was the only woman of billions who have inhabited our planet who was chosen to carry and nurse God's son. That's a blessing. Look what he declared to her. Favor and presence. And what was Mary's response? Verse 29, literally she's she, it means that she's just pondering these things. Sort of perplexed, but not perplexed in a skeptical way, but perplexed in a, I think, in a, in a joyful way. Like, how could this happen to me? Reflective, meditative on the greeting, contemplating deeply on this grace and this blessing and favor. And as anyone who is humble would ask themselves, why would God so highly favor me? She understood her position before the Lord. She knew who she was. She was a nobody. She was nothing, and in particular, she was nothing without the grace of God. Now think about how this perspective and this posture of life is even today. And not to make stereotypes, but when was the last time that you've met even a teenager with that perspective? That would stop to contemplate the rich and deep mercies of the grace of God in their own life. It's rare, not just for teens, but, but for most adults. We live in such a shallow age where we only want to go as deep as a Google search or Wikipedia search. We never want to truly contemplate. We want to consume headlines alone. And yet God's grace should be perplexing to us. Perplexing to us. Pondering and contemplating God's word. It, it should draw us in all the time for, for deep quality time to unpack the scriptures, to know more and to enjoy this God who has highly favored you with the gospel and has blessed you with his word and with his spirit. 
and to find deep joy in the Lord. And this is where we see in our first point this right response of humility. Because rights, humility and the grace of our, um, excuse me, the grace of God always produces humility. And when you're pondering upon God's grace, then we should respond in humility. And when we contemplate the condition of our lives, when we meditate on God's word and we focus upon the course and destiny of, of where we are headed in light of God's revelation, do we, do we think of ourselves to be just too busy for this? Is this a work that is uh, uh, too hard or is this a work that is not worth it? Are we too distracted? Are we truly too distracted to be humble and contemplate the promises of God, of the incarnation this year? I mean, it's, it's like it's coming like a freight train. We can hear it. And are we too busy to just sit in all of it, of the atonement, of the cross, and of the resurrection? Is this just something that's academic and intellectual? Is this just something another year is to go by and we're just to nod at it and say, yep, a virgin birth? Or the grace of God? Or is it something that we truly can be confronted with and astounded by and perplexed and ponder upon the gospel and our true unworthiness and yet God's unmerited favor of grace that he has given you. Does it humble you? We see a second response, a response of faith. So when it comes, when she contemplates and she's troubled by the greeting, Gabriel speaks again to her in verse 30 and says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God again. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will, of God will, will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Now this must have been some pretty shocking news for a teenager to hear. Certainly of all the, the glorious things that they have been waiting and who this child would be, but shocking of a pregnancy that she would conceive and have a baby. Mary understood what was happening, that she was going to be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. This is in fulfillment of the promises of God. And again, these promises that go all the way back to the garden where now the seed of the woman would come, and he would come to crush the head of the snake. Mary, your son, your baby, that you are going to have is going to be the snake crusher. This is an amazing story, as we like to say, of biblical proportions. It doesn't get bigger than this narrative here. And this is the same kind of narrative we are facing even today. 
how the seed or the seed of the serpent is still at war with the seed of the woman. Do we wonder why there is such a war on women today? And I don't mean the progressive ideology, ridiculous stuff. They don't get health care. That's ridiculous. I mean the real war on women that we are totally changing the idea of what it means to be a woman. In fact, they have no clue what it means to be a woman. And yet it is as obvious to a child what it is. This is the war that's happening. And the announcement to this little teenager is the snake crusher is here. You get the, that, what I'm saying? That's what's going to happen. Crushed. And so she's humble and, re, and reflecting over all this. And she asks a, asks a very logical question. She says, how? She's, she's not being disbelieving. She's simply asking for understanding. Understanding. The question was biological. It was biological. She didn't need to be a biologist to understand what happens here and what it means to have a baby. She understood. Think about this, guys. We're, we're just like, we're going backwards. She understood this. She knows what it means to be a woman. She doesn't need to be a biologist to understand what's really happening. God, how are you going to do this? I'm still a virgin. How can I conceive if I am a, a virgin? So we need to stop right there because there is this idea of when Zechariah questions and he gets the discipline and, and Mary doesn't. Well, Zechariah's question, you can go back and read it, was in doubt and demanding of, of evidence, but Mary believed and had faith. Her, pastor, her posture was of understanding, of faith. The Bible's full of people who ask questions and want understanding, but we ask in faith, like Mary did, humble but with faith. And when we ask like that, when we ask in faith questions that we may have, truly we may never get an answer. But still, exercising our faith becomes sweeter than the answer itself, oftentimes. Now, usually in the Bible, you do not get answers this quickly. But Gabriel's there and actually answers for her the how. Tells her the how. And this answer is mind-blowing. Look at verse 35. It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child will be born, will be called holy, the son of God. How will she conceive? The Holy Spirit would overshadow her. This means that the Spirit would be, would be present with her. He would bring life where biologically she was incapable or was impossible. Mary's pregnancy would be normal like every other child what was born, yet different from all of humanity in that Jesus did not have a human father. His conception occurred by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a miracle in the strictest of sense, an act that only can be accomplished by God himself. Only God can make something out of nothing. Only God can bring life from death. 
Only God can bring fertility to the barren woman and conceive in a virgin's womb. And this miracle is so pivotal to our faith. And Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes it to us so that we can have certainty in this miracle, this virgin birth, because it is true. And this news right here changes everything. It changes everything. I know I've told you all the story about the time back in like 2002. I was with my family on Christmas Day in this town of Williamsburg, Virginia, celebrating Christmas with my family on a vacation. And we went to some Baptist church right across the street from William and Mary, the oldest college in the United States. And there in this Baptist church, we're looking to hear and sing these good songs and, and hear a good message preached on Christmas. And lo and behold, the moron at the pulpit had the audacity to deny the virgin birth on Christmas morning. Did he miss the text? Can read this and say, when the angel says what is impossible with man is possible with God, and say, yeah, but not this. This is the greatest of news, and that changes everything. And he gives more evidence, and he says, he leaves her with the sign of the promise and just kind of throws this in at the end and says, oh, yeah, your cousin, the real old one that you have, Elizabeth, she's pregnant, six months. You should go check it out. Just throws it in there. Mary didn't know about Elizabeth. And what a delightful surprise and assurance of her own belief and what is about to happen to her. And then the passage that I just quote, the angel ends with this in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. I mean, listen to that, those words. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary, not even elderly woman who has been barren her whole life, she has been pregnant for six months. Nothing. Not even you, Mary, a young virgin. You will conceive by the Holy Spirit. Do not doubt the possibilities of God. And this brought me looking forward to where we hear this same language again. And that is in Luke chapter 18, when, when, when Jesus had encountered this rich young ruler. And they go through the whole story, and the, and the rich young ruler goes away disappointed because he had more uh, pleasure in his treasures and his riches, riches than he could ever have, as he thought, in the Son of God. And then the, the disciples were just, again, they were perplexed. Jesus, this rich young, this rich ruler here can't be saved. Then, then what hope does it have, do any of us have? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. How do we then think, believe, and look at the promises of God? The impossible and that which is absurd to us is possible with him. That he would fulfill his word. Nothing is too hard for God. He gives faith to the faithless. He saves the unsavable. He loves the unlovable. It's as simple as that. For our response then is not just humility, but that one of faith. And last is a response of submission. Verse 38, very simply, Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. 
Let it be to me according to your word. And Mary's response, I think, sums up the quintessential right response. A humble response of faith, a humble response of submission to the will of God. And what I could not get away from is how much this sounds just like her son when he grows up, when he says in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. It seems crazy to submit to the Lord. It seems crazy in this matter to submit to the Lord because I'm sure she understands what's about to come. But she doesn't ask, how is Joseph going to respond? What are my parents going to say? And what's going to happen when the town sees me pregnant? She knows how they're going to respond. And she knows that there are going to be consequences to her obedience. And at best, she would be divorced and disgraced for the rest of her life to raise the child by herself. And at worst, she was going to be stoned to death. This wasn't going to be an easy road for her. But yet we hear the right response to the grace of God to an uncertain future is always submission to the will of God. Because faith exercised is believing that God is always good and that he's always working out our good for his glory and for our joy. And we cannot experience Christ and his ongoing power without totally surrendering, surrendering ourselves to him. Maybe believing the promises of God, they seem so impossible to us because we just truly have not submitted ourselves to them. We do not submit in a funeral tone. We do not submit stubbornly or angrily or begrudgingly, but we submit as Mary with joyful expectation that God is not taking from her a life that she thought she was going to have and ruin her life with this pregnancy, but that God would, through, through this, she would see and delight in the light of the world. And so if our right response to Christmas and to the promises of God is humility, faith, and submission, as we've seen in the example here, what is driving then our right response? Then how do we then believe? Well, first we believe in the promises of God because we have been given, we have evidence of the word of God. The angel Gabriel gave Mary understanding and evidence of the promises of God that he delivered to her. All these things were prophesied earlier in God's word, that she would conceive and, and also that her son would be great and would be the son of the Most High. These things were not hidden. We, just, we read this morning from Isaiah chapter 9. These things aren't hidden, but they were promises, real promises that they were longing for and expecting and waiting for. And, and where is the evidence then of all these things? That all things then work together for, the God, for those who love Jesus Christ? Where's the evidence then for that? Well, brothers and sisters, our evidence for that is in the Word of God. The Word of God is the source of all of our understanding. It teaches us everything we know, need to know about the character, the person, and the work of Jesus Christ. So we, we test all things out by God's Word. And even test the testimony of angels to the word of God. We contemplate, we meditate, we ponder on the word of God. We make it a habit and we cultivate a humility 
that brings contemplation upon his grace. And that is one way in how we believe and trust the promises of God and respond in humility and faith and submission. We rely upon the word of God. And second, we believe the promises of God because of the possibilities of God. Meaning, once again, what we already said is that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Right? The the rich young ruler. We we brought that up earlier because what is impossible for any of us to actually being reconciled and forgiven before God, that's what's impossible. How could God, holy and righteous, forgive such a sinful people? That's impossible. It's more absurd than a virgin birth. And yet, our salvation is completely the work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the possibilities of God. And so when we read the the promises of God, that he who began a good work in us will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ, we can be encouraged, not discouraged. We can be encouraged to humbly believe that though we may see ourselves as train wrecks, that God still loves us and that he has redeemed us and that he truly is sanctifying us. And this is why the gospel is so good and why Christmas is so joyful and wonderful to us because the incarnation of the Son of God was to bring about this kind of impossibility the impossible salvation of his people. And each and every one of you who are in Christ are an example of that miraculous impossibility. To God be the glory. And last, we believe the promises of God because the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the same spirit that overshadowed Mary and miraculously brought about the conception of Jesus Christ is the same glorious Holy Spirit that indwells within each of us now and brings life to where sin had brought death. It brings light where sin had brought darkness. And he is now empowering us to believe these promises of God. The same power in verse 35 is the same power that is sanctifying you, that is causing you to walk by faith and not by sight. So that when we read 1 Corinthians 10 31 and we're in that kind of situation that no temptation has, will overtake you, that is common to man, we read that God is faithful and he will not tempt you beyond your ability, but he has also provided you a way of escape, then in those moments we can believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, the promises of God that we can endure and we can overcome by his Spirit. This is the Spirit of God that is within us. This is the Spirit that was with Mary. This is the Spirit that was with Jesus, and he is with you, and he is with me. And brothers and sisters, beloved Church of Jesus Christ, as we end here, the sweetness of Christmas and the joy of Christmas is the celebration of all the promises of God that find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All the promises that have already been fulfilled, we celebrate that he has come, 
And then he has brought salvation to his people, redemption. Made us new creatures and new creations in Christ. He has united us in the body of Christ. The undeserved, the sinner, the wicked, the Gentile. All of those promises have been fulfilled in Christ. But brothers and sisters, we also look forward to promises that await us to be fulfilled. And all of those promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ as well. And to that we await. And to that we, we deeply reflect upon. That we, we deeply long for and we, and we pray for. As they eagerly were awaiting this Christ child, we are eagerly awaiting the return of Christ as his church. And we pray that we would remain faithful and obedient and humble and submissive to his word at all times. Being ready as the virgins filling their lamps with oil, waiting for the bridegroom to return to bring his church home with them. That is the joy and the sweetness of Christmas and the, and the celebration that we have this morning and the week to come. And I pray that we all, with great joy, would rejoice in these things and believe in these promises. And all God's people say,